Welcome to the Monday Morning Pastor Podcast, brought to you in partnership with Missio Alliance and Kairos Partnerships. Hi, Doug. Good to see you. Good to see you too, JR. You're looking dapper this morning. Well, it's uh, it's certainly been an interesting time. I don't know about you, but I have to force myself uh, throughout this pandemic, even if I'm not seeing anybody, like I still have to get up and like shower. Not that I dress up, but I'm certainly not you know, rolling out of bed and working. I don't know about you. Do you have like a morning routine, even if you're like at home? Absolutely. If I don't, uh, it, like, I, I never thought I'd be forcing myself to put my pants on. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, but I think, yeah. So every morning I go, uh, after prayer with our community, I end up, uh, I either lift or run every morning yeah. and then I shower and I get to work and yeah. it's, I, I ha I have to have to do that. Yep. Yeah, makes sense. Makes sense. So, you know, one of the things we've been talking about recently, Doug, with is just the intensity. Um, I mean, I, I, I am, uh, I'm alarmed and I'm scared a little bit if I'm, if I'm being totally uh, truthful here, because the first six months of this pandemic, I think we we're like, okay, well, we got it. You know, six months. Okay, now we're in the fall. Well, this, fall is an intense time for ministries and for pastors, and we're already six months exhausted. And, uh, I, I'm, I'm a bit concerned and I, I know you are too, Doug. And, uh, so we've been kind of listening, uh, for what are other people saying what are other leaders around the country saying about this? And it just feels like we talk about the Monday morning pastor podcast, that Mondays are the most difficult day of the week. It's when uh, most minute, most pastors, the day of the week that they quit, um, you know, that there's suicides, that there's, uh, you know, all sorts of things. Mondays are the most difficult day. And it just feels like 2020 is nothing but Monday after Monday after Monday, like mm. every day is a Monday. Mm. And so we just feel like this fall, maybe even more important, maybe the most important season for us with the podcast is to lean in and encourage and provide perspective. And so we just want to remind our listeners, if you're feeling discouraged, overwhelmed, lonely, misunderstood, uh, feeling the intensity of like every decision you make is incredibly important and weighty, we want you to know you're not alone. In fact, if you aren't feeling those things, you're in the rare minority. <laughs> and so we just want to make sure you hear that you're not alone in your lone aloneness in this season. So mm -hmm. um, anyway, but Doug, you and I have been uh, talking about uh, a few articles. And one of those articles we want to look at uh, just briefly that have been, that's been really fascinating is uh, on churchanswers.com by Tom Rayner. Tom Rayner uh, is the director of Lifeway Research. And uh, he wrote an article on the blog portion of that website, Six Reasons Your Pastor is a about to quit. And so we want to just go through those briefly. So Doug, um, what are some of those that, uh, that Tom talks about in the article? Yeah, I, I think, and, and again, we feel like there, I think JR, you said this before, but you know, naming it has a way of taming it. And so yeah. I feel like even as we talk about this, it's just an opportunity to collectively say, yeah, I, yes, yes, yes. And that even gives us some power, but yeah, he talked about the six things. And the first one was pastors are weird from the pandemic pandemic, just like everyone else. And I think this, this is such a true statement. And I, I don't know about, um, I don't know about every pastor that I've come in contact with, but there's just this sense of, we know what to do in most situations. When someone passes away, we kind of know what words to say. When, when someone's going through a difficult space in their marriage, you know, we, we, we understand how to, 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 to speak words of hope and words of truth. But when we're also experiencing the difficulty of the pandemic season, um, we're exhausted too. And uh, can I get an amen for the folks amen. listening right now? Like, it's just tiring. I mean, goodness gracious, it, it's, it's exhausting. Yeah. Yeah. And the second one that he talked about, he said, pastors are greatly discouraged about the fighting that's taking place among church members about the post-quarantine church. And he talked about, you know, really focused in on like, do we gather or not? You know, do we wear masks? Do we, do we wait? Do we social distance? And no matter what we decide, we sort of tick off half the congregation because it's sort of a lose-lose uh, situation on some of these major decisions. I would add some things to what Tom uh, had here. I would add things like the election coming up here yep. in just a handful of weeks, um, even the racial uh, divisions and the, um, the the issues that are flaring up racially around our country, policing, do we support the, the police? I mean, all of these are dividing congregations. And in addition to do we open up or do we not? Yeah. Yeah. The third thing he talked about was pastors are discouraged about losing members and attendance. Um, and I think that 
what he's trying to say is, uh, I, I can't remember what article I read recently, but someone was mentioning that up to a quarter of your congregation will not return. And I think a lot of us are kind of in that moment where we're waiting to see what's actually happening. And even with a lot of the online presence, it's been interesting to think some of those folks may never actually reattend a church service or a church gathering in in in, in a face-to-face fashion. And so, yeah, I mean, there, there just seems to be this underlying every time the phone rings or every time you get an email from someone, there's almost this anxiety that's coming up. Like, are, are they telling us that they're leaving because we're not, you know, doing this or because we are doing this? And so, yeah, I, I think that that is a real concern right now. Yeah. And that leads to the next one that he talked about, that pastors don't know if their churches will be able to support uh, their ministries financially in the future. And so if you're losing people from your church, uh, that's obviously cutting into it. But on top of that, many are struggling. And so even those that want to give or are giving, there's just, you know, financially, they may have lost a job or uh, expenses have increased in certain areas because of all the complexities going on. So the financial future is really cloudy and murky and uncertain. So how do you even put a budget together Hmm. in time? And so that creates incredible amounts of stress, as well as people that are coming to talk to their pastor about, uh, I I need help financially. And so the benevolence funds are often being used more as well. Yeah. And I, and the fifth thing was criticism against pastors have increased significantly. Uh, again, what? I'm shocked by this stuff. I know. I thought everyone would be like, Hey, my pastor's doing an awesome job. It's a good <laughs> thing. He's a superhuman and has all the answers, <laughs> but no, I mean, it's again, I, I've heard a few pastors locally and around the country who've just shared heartbreaking emails and stories. And, and it just feels like there are these, there are these unhealthy expectations. And even I think in some of that, and you mentioned earlier, just with the election, there's things are just really politicized within the church right now. And pastors are, are, are these voices who are trying to figure out what it is to discern. How do we go? How do we pursue the way of Jesus in this? And it seems like everyone's getting angry. Yeah. Um, and so if you're one of those pastors that has, have received an email like that, like we, we get it. We have, <laughs> we, we continue to see this trend moving in a dire- in that direction. Yeah. Yeah. And then the last one that Tom gives is the workload for pastors has increased significantly. I'm not sure a lot more needs to be said about that. We all know that. We all feel that. We're even trying to learn new things. It's almost like we're trying to write with our opposite hand, right? Like we ministry letters, we know how to do lettering and penmanship, but at the same time, we're like, this is a totally different side of my brain. I've never had to worry about, do we gather in person or not, or about safety measures, or, you know, I have recording something online or trying to navigate something where we just don't know when this is going to end. I think the word that I've been thinking through a lot, you know, the word unprecedented has been used an unprecedented amount of times, but that word unrelenting, we don't, unrelenting means we don't know when it's going to end. And I think that's the exhaustion right now. Mm. Hmm. We can push through and say for three months, it's going to be tough or for six. We just don't know. Is this going to end next month? Is this going to be three more years? And that's what can be so exhausting in this season. And so part of the reason why the workload for pastors has increased significantly. So Doug, is this something that we can put this in the show notes? Yeah, we'll have, we'll have a link to this article in the show notes. Um, and yeah, and, and again, as the Monday morning pastor, we want to be raw and honest, but we also want to be hope filled and hopeful and and so I think even in the midst of that, to, to, to be reminded, you may feel like you're the only one who's experiencing this, but to know that other pastors down the street, in your neighborhood, in your denomination, in your network, like we're feeling this together. And so you're not alone. And we need to continue to rely on one another, rely on the spirit, the spirit who the, you know, Jesus gave us the spirit, the spirit sends us, comforts us, guides us, gives us wisdom, gives us discernment. He's present with us. Jesus himself is with us. And so I think just to be reminded of that. And again, that's why we are so excited and we feel honored to journey with you all during this unrelenting season in the Monday Morning Pastor to have an opportunity to laugh a bit, even to to name some of these really hard things that are happening and to hear from other voices around the country who are experiencing the same thing. guest today is Sean Palmer. Sean is the teaching pastor at Ecclesia Houston. He's a speaker and an executive coach. He's also a graduate of Abilene Christian University. 
Sean is an author of Unarmed Empire and 40 Days on Being a Three in Enneagram Daily Reflections, a book that's releasing this fall with Suzanne Stabile. He was a contributing writer for the Voice Bible Project, which is a translation project through the Ecclesia Bible Society. And he also serves as the vice chair of the Missio Alliance Board. He and his wife, Rochelle, and their two daughters live in Houston, Texas. Enjoy this conversation with Sean Palmer. Well, Sean, thanks for being uh, willing to be on the Monday Morning Pastor podcast with us. It's good to have you on this morning. It's great to be here. I've been looking forward to it. Fi- glad we could finally get together. Yeah, I know we've had some stops and starts, but so glad you're able to join us. Um, we, we we shared your your bio at the beginning, but tell us a little bit about your story beyond just kind of the journalistic side of things. Like, who is Sean Palmer? What makes Sean tick? What do you love to do? What are your passions, man? Oh, goodness. Um, that's a real struggle for the people who live around me because I am interested in a thousand things all of the time. And so uh, I grew up in Mississippi and in Atlanta. So I'm a kid of the South, went to school here in Texas and kind of stayed. My wife and I met in in Abilene at Abilene Christian University. She grew up in Phoenix, but she was born here in Houston where we live. And uh, I was coming from Atlanta. So we say we kind of met in the middle and all of the last, I guess, 22, 23 years that we've been married, we've been here in Texas. We have two daughters. That's really where much of our attention and all of our money goes <laughs> to teenage daughters. Um, They're 16 and 13, and they are, for the most part, really great kids. You know, we've got the youngest is in eighth grade. And if you've had a middle schooler, you just know. My wife has to remind me, like, we we went through this with the first one. Like, this too shall pass. Um, but yeah, love. Um, so right now it's basketball playoffs. And so I'm really big NBA fan. Um, yeah, your your Spurs uh, Facebook uh, updates are uh, you you are super fan. You are super fan. <laughs> well, you know, I I interned for a church in San Antonio when I was in college, okay. and coming living in Atlanta, the Hawks were just never anything to pay attention to. <laughs> and that summer, I guess it was like 1990, um, I just, I fell in love with the Spurs, and my wife was a Spurs fan because of David Robinson, mm-hmm. and then my first church where I worked at was in South Texas, like on the border. And once you get to San Antonio, there is nothing, you know. So if you if you're South, like you're just a Spurs fan and and the Spurs are a one, a one team town, like San Antonio is a one team town. Like there's no big college team. There's no other pro. So everybody that has tentacles in and around San Antonio is a deeply devoted Spurs fan because that's all you got really. And then to, for them to be so good for so long and they just love pop and such good guys like Robinson and Tim Duncan and Manu just mean a ton of the city. So all Spurs fans, I say that to say all Spurs fans are deeply <laughs> devoted Spurs fans. No, that's, that's great. In fact, let's go there for a second because I'm a huge fan of leadership. I'm a basketball fan. Greg Popovich and his leadership is, I mean, just the mastermind of what he's done to create the championships for the Spurs. I'm curious, is there anything, and I don't know the answer to this, but is there anything in terms of Greg Popovich's leadership that can translate for what the church can learn about leadership and how we lead other people? Yes. And this brings a, a bunch of my passions together because I have a passion <laughs> about uh, um, wine and, and Greg Popovich. Like I have heard advanced, not masters, but advanced sommeliers say Greg Popovich knows more about wine for anyone who's not an advanced or master Somali, anyone. Yes. And his wine dinners are legendary in the league. Like you can dig up articles that NBA is written about and the wine's taken a big, um, it's really popular in the NBA. Like a lot of guys like LeBron James and others are invested in wineries. It's become this thing. And so what Popovich has done is that if someone came to him several years ago, maybe a decade ago and said like, you're too intense and it's all about basketball. You need something else. You know, he's a West Point guy. And so he got into wine and, you know, he's one of these folks who can go into any, any boutique restaurant in the world and say, I want, you know, Chateau de Came, you know, and he loves like 70s Cabernets. Um, And he would gather, he gathers people and players and players, families and has these wine dinners. 
And he actually gets to, this is where he gets to know them as people and shares his vision, not for who they are on the court, but who they are in the world. And he is a consummate student. Like, so people who talk about Popovich, who write about Popovich say like, um, he's a consummate student. And as gruff as he is, like he says things and press conferences that no other coach can say without. Yeah. I actually find him quite hilarious. I will tune in to those interviews just to hear what he's going to say with his just gruff and uh, cranky tone. Yeah, I mean, and because like you can see, especially if you watch a lot of Spurs and you follow them, like he has such deep caring for individuals on his, on his team. And it's, he cares about basketball and he cares about his basketball players but I have never gotten the sense that he cares about winning. That he cares about just racking up more and more championships. He hardly ever talk. He hardly ever talks about that. He talks about the way his team plays like them, not them, not making the playoffs this year. Them not making the playoffs this year, going into the bubble. He said, I'm not concerned about making the playoffs. Right. We we've got to do some things with a young guy. I've seen them win games and him come out to press conferences and say, we stole that game from the Nets tonight. They should have won. Like we got lucky. Um, You know, when you're when you're chewing out Tim Duncan in his 15th, 16th, 17th year, um, I do think there's a lot of leadership. to He cares about his people more than he cares about the success outcomes. And that's that's what pastors need to pay attention to. Is yeah. that where you're getting? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the pastors need to care about wine. And, that was yeah. that. <laughs> <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Well, but I think I think you bring up a really good point. You know, pastors need to have hobbies other than just church, right? Just church and church <laughs> leadership. And although I may never be able to buy a bottle of wine from the seventies, uh, <laughs> there has to be these these ways in which pastors are engaging life outside of ministry and outside of the work that we do, even though we love it. And I wonder too, like, and maybe you can speak to this, but how much more it helps him love the game because he also has another love and another passion. Right. You've got to be able to put that down. Right. And so you never put down your hiddenness in Christ, right? Like you never put down, but the folks that I see derail themselves um, are people who being a pastor is their identity. And there's a really delicate way that we have to hold this vocation where we say like, it's more than a job. It's not like, being an accountant, not that there's anything wrong with being an accountant or a lawyer or a school teacher, but you've got to be able to set that aside and become a full person for a lot of reasons. Like I, I teach my preaching clients this to like, like, what are you going to say? Like Ernest Hemingway says the problem with most writers is they live the first 27 years of their life and then spend the rest of their life writing about the first 27 years. Hmm. Um, like you've got to keep living to have touch points with what your congregants the people you're pastoring, like, what are their lives like? What are they dealing with? They don't go to places every day where largely they're dealing with people who quote unquote, like, you know, have, you know, don't cuss, don't spit, don't steal. Like they're out there in a world that's different than working on a church staff or even a a small church staff where you're meeting in coffee shops and doing that sort of thing. Um, you know, they're not reading theology all day. They have a different world that they inhabit. And you need to have some tentacles into that world. Plus, it just makes you more interesting. Um, and all of your, um, all of your in- energy going toward the tools that it takes to pastor better in terms of, hey, I'm going to do this on leadership and this on theology. Um, I think that leaves you in a precarious position because you are you're unformed as a human being. Mm. Mm. Um, And then when that, when that goes away, who are you then? If pastoring becomes your identity, um, who are you then? Yeah. So let's get a little more personal on that, Sean. Totally agree with you. I mean, we're just nodding vigorously here because we totally agree with you on this. How do you personally protect against that? What are your, practices that keep you 
from making that your identity. Cause you could, I mean, you're successful, you're well-loved, you're well-liked, you're, you're very intelligent, articulate. How do you keep that from becoming your own identity? Well, I learned a long time ago from, um, a professor in college to say, he said, you cannot let other people define you. And so one of the things you do is just like, keep trying new stuff, like stay interesting, um, take up new hobbies. So if you're like, Wine is not only a, a hobby and fascination, so is coffee, so is photography. Um, we were sitting around in our staff meeting about nine or 10 months ago. And the kind of get to know you question for that day, which is really hard in a room of 40 people, right? <laughs> um, that day was like something like, what, name something that you would like to, that you wish you were able to do. I think it was something like that. And so a bunch of people answered and our uh, worship pastor for our downtown campus is a wonderful guy named Paul Pelt, who has also gotten into photography in the last couple of years. And it was things like, I wish I knew how to play guitar. I always want to learn how to, you know, I wish I played the piano. I wish I did photography. And at the end of that, Paul just looks up and he's, he's one of these people who's like, he's so glad to be on a church staff. Cause he's like, I was working at Sherwin Williams selling paint before this job. Right? <laughs> and um, and he looks up and he goes, you know, these things, a lot of these things are things you can just, you know, learn. <laughs> <laughs> and, I'm, and I'm like, that's like the most brilliant thing that's ever said. Like, you really want to get into painting, photography, golf. You want to learn, like, you can actually just learn those things. So uh, a couple of things. I actually play video games mm. like I'm sitting here and I'm like, oh, I've got I'm looking. I can see my PlayStation, my Nintendo Switch. I'm terrible at video games um, unless they're sports based. And I do that <laughs> just to give me just to work a different part of my. Yeah. yeah. Um, I want to stay interested in something. So if I feel a prompting of interest, like it was several when we lived in California, why? Like, oh, I want to learn about that. Um, mm -hmm. And, you know, the way you do anything is the way you do everything. And I tend to go deep dive into new things like, mm. um, and just get to a place where I will, I just want to be, I will, I find people interesting. I find stories interesting. I find history interesting. So I read a biography, I guess, seven or eight years ago, I decided I wanted to read a biography of all American presidents that I was interested in. And so I did that. Um, and it's just, for me, it's just always been Doug, just following my interest um, yeah, and true. staying open to learning, which I think is another, um, pastors, too many pastors are in a position of teaching that they forget. They're also supposed to be learning and that they are capable of learning more than one thing. Mm. That's, that's good. That's really good. You mentioned, um, earlier and even just a few minutes ago, like you love stories. Is there a particular story right now that just has you captured and captivated? A particular story? Well, it depends on what I'm reading. So like right now I'm re reading Isabel Wilkerson, I think is her last name. Um, the Warmth of Other Sons. And it is about the great migration of uh, black Americans from the South mm -hmm. escaping Jim Crow to California and to North. And so for mm -hmm. me, that is uh, just opened up more worlds of things that I want to explore. Like, mm -hmm. oh, like there's a piece in there about Atlanta University. I grew up in Atlanta. I don't know much about Atlanta University. I know about Morehouse and Spelman. And, other, um, and so I'll just and then I'll follow that rabbit hole. Um, in the last couple of years, uh, I'm trying, cause usually my stories, cause I just love history are around events in history. I just finished mm -hmm. Eric Larson's book, the splendid and the vile about Winston Churchill. Mm -hmm. Um, and so I want to know more about, um, Winston Churchill. So I've got a biography of Churchill that, so I just follow personalities that I find interesting. Mm. Where do you think that came from, Sean? Because, I mean, I'm wired the same way. I mean, I just, I'm wired as a learner. I think there might be pastors even going in, you know, as we're in the fall here, they're just like, I'd love to learn, Sean. Like, I'd love to have hobbies. I, 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 I don't even know which end is up considering how they just the, the multi-layered crisis of 2020. <laughs> uh, what, what would you want to say to those, those pastors that are just, they're just burning the wick on both ends 
and they're just going, I don't have time for a hobby. I mean, I, in theory, I totally get you, Sean, but that's just not a reality for me yeah. right now. I would I say that's a, I'd say that's a lie. You do have time. You do have time for a hobby. You do have time to pursue other interests. And that begins with a, a self-knowing. And that's, this is really hard for us to realize. And I, as pastors, like, you are not, we are not needed as much as we think we are. Mm. We're just not. People can put things together without us. That does not mean that we abandon them. That does not mean that we are inaccessible. Um, but it's very much like you would do raising children. There are things that you will do for them at different points. And then there are things that if they don't happen, that's because you didn't do them. Mm. Um, and you have to actually see, I, I think most, I think many pastors, I don't want to say most, I think many pastors fundamentally don't trust three things. They don't trust God. They don't trust the things that they've taught their churches and they don't church, don't trust their churches. Mm. Um, and there are very few times where we look at our congregations and say, this is not something I'm going to do for you. Mm. Like, um, here are the, th here are the places we've made things accessible. They're open. Um, so we had this, uh, you know, we have folks come to us all the time say we should do something about X. Um, and when I was leading small groups as part of my duties as teaching pastor, I had folks, I want to start a new small group. And I would say to them, okay, that sounds great. Um, you get three other families or couples and come back to me and then we'll, we'll get you started. And about a quarter of those started because what most people were saying was we want you to start a small group for us. Mm -hmm. Right. Or we want to start that we ought to, I think we ought to be doing this with this X population. Okay. You get together three to five other people, families, and then come back to me and we'll see where we are. They can actually do this on their own. Like they don't need me to do that. Um, so that's one thing. And if you know what's on Netflix, you have time for a hobby. <laughs> That's so true. That is a great litmus test. <laughs> so, so Sean, keep, keep, keep drilling down on that. If those are the three things that, that many, maybe not most, but many pastors don't trust, what's behind that? What drives that lack of trust? I think it's actually the leadership culture in Christian circles, especially in big church evangelicalism. Um, I don't know, maybe about seven years or so now I went to a, um, a leadership event in Dallas and I sat in, actually, this was the year before that, cause I was still in California and I was sitting there listening to the whole thing. And I really enjoyed the worship. I thought the speakers were great. It was really, it was really kind of an uplifting time. What I needed at that moment in my life and ministry. And I walked out after two days and said, there's nothing that I heard these two days that anyone actually needs God to do. Wow. It was entirely um, Donatistic. Like it was just the, if you put the right people doing the right programs in the right systems, these are the best outcomes you can get. It was totally void of needing the spirit of God totally void of leaders needing to inhabit um, the personhood of God or to abide in God, to have any sort of robust spiritual relationship with God. And that's what we've been inundated with in church, in the church world for at least over 20 years. And so we just take that into our churches, man, if we can get the right people on the bus in the right positions, then this thing's going to explode. And by explode, what we mean are butts and budgets. Um, so there's actually no room for God to do anything because, I mean, people complain about there's no prayer in schools. There's not a lot of prayer in churches either. <laughs> um, and then we, we, our, our congregants pick up on that and become dependent upon us because we've built this system that they need to feed into. And they sense that they are a cog in the wheel. Mm. Um, they sense that they are just a nose to be counted and they become, we are feeding into the consumeristic nature of Americans by the way that we do church. Mm. Um, mm. 
which I'm so like, I think the whole COVID quarantine thing is an opportunity for us to reimagine not everything. And I'm not one of these people who, you know, there are some folks, if you look at Twitter and look, yeah, burn think, the whole yep. thing down. Scott yeah. Over. Like, yeah. This, is, this is what they've been waiting for, right? <laughs> because this was their prescription to begin with. Um, and I found that church leaders, every church leader I know thinks the answer after COVID is the same thing they thought was the answer before COVID. Whether it's the big box church on the street who's like, man, everything's going to go online. You got to leverage online, 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 online. Look, this is what we're learning from COVID online, online, online. And then you got other folks who are saying like, yeah, big churches like that was all terrible. Anyway, they don't form people. They really, you know, it's all going to be small. Look, look what's happened when you can't meet. You can't do it. They're like every big church I know that's gone online, Doug, online, JR, the budgets are better or sustaining yeah. and numbers are up. Hmm. So it's, I find that so incredibly fascinating that like at my church, we have this event called open door where it's, we have it several times a year for all the new members. They get the history of the church. Um, what we mean by a holistic missional community, we get, they get all that. We're having to have those during COVID. I'm meeting people in public that I've never seen before who says like, I'm a member at Ecclesia. And they they've never been on any property. They've just watched us online. I'm not I don't want online church to be the future. I'm I'm not a big fan for my own personal reasons. But every so many people are diagnosing the future based on what they were the same way they were diagnosing the past. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think we need to look at the genuine opportunities in this moment. The things that weren't possible before, but we have to stay open to the spirit of God and church leaders are some of the worst people in their churches at being open to the spirit of God because the spirit of God frequently messes with our plans. Sean, I, I think I love the way that you're talking about the, the opportunities that we're seeing uh, possible for the first time ever. And again, I think the digital, pres- the digital presence of the church is one of those things that it may not be my personal preference, but it is the new reality. Like there has to be digital presence. It's, it's, this, it's a new pioneer opportunity for mission. Um, but let's see you take the make off, makeup off for just a moment. Uh, has this been hard for you or where has this been hard for you? Um, and have there been moments when you've sensed that you've been at the end of your rope? Yes, it's been extraordinarily hard. And some of those have been for really healthy reasons and some for unhealthy reasons. Mm. Um, One of the warnings I have issued to pastors, especially teaching pastors and senior pastors who have to preach is that you don't need to preach if you need to preach. Mm, If there's something in your ego and spirit that needs to have people listen to you and the, all of the attaboys, the attagirls, um, that sort of adoration, then you don't need to do this. But I don't think until the hearer in the room is taken away that we realize how addicted we have become to it, mm-hmm. to uh, the smiling faces, the laughing, the quite, quite frankly, the adoration that we receive in the moment. There aren't very many places in the culture. I mean, where else in our culture are four times a weekend, 800 people going to stop and listen to me talk for 30 minutes like that. And when that went away during the first early parts of COVID Sundays, I was so depressed on Sundays. Mm after we got through doing all the family stuff and our zoom, our, our worship online, then we'd partner up with other folks on zoom to kind of connect and talk for whatever level of connection that is like, and our whole family was depressed and not just because of the preaching, but because of like, this is the time where we see this group of people 
and share a measure of our life together. Our small groups not meeting. It's not the. It's just not the same because of the way that my particular small group was oriented. It was a lot around food and laughter and this free flowing conversation, and it was much more sharing life than we're gonna you know do this curriculum or study. And that's been really very difficult. Like I, um, I have been in tears more the last five months than any time in my life because of the craving for certain people. And then we, um, you watch it online and you go, oh man, that's, you know, that's JLo or that's Courtney singing today. Like I miss them. Um, and that's been really difficult. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's also really difficult when people are going through difficult times to not be able to so much of what I was trained to do was ministry of presence, not just incarnation, mm-hmm. but ministry of presence. So when someone we had a member who lost their mom uh, this you know two days ago. Um, that's not a funeral I can go to. That's not a house that I can go and visit. I mean, we, um, that's been really difficult during the George Floyd, um, uh, incident and the reaction to that. Like, obviously a lot of our African-American members reached out to me. Um, Mm -hmm. we had a couple come over to the house, but to not be able to walk with people and to have them walk with you, right? Because one of our tenants, in our church is, is that we're going to do our best to be real, um, with one another. And that's just been the emotional isolation, um, is really difficult. And it's hard to hold that emotional isolation in any other emotion for me than sadness and anger. Mm. Um, so I, I get when people, when people go out with their AK 47s and say protest and say, we want haircuts. Um, they really don't want haircuts. They want to feel safe. That's why they have the gun. They want to be touched. Like we, when mm-hmm. I talked to some of our members who haven't, because they're single or whatever, haven't hugged another person in five months who they're the kind of people for whom that became important. So all that to say, I think we have seen where our dependencies are. And some of those dependencies are healthy and deliberate in the way that God wired us. And some of them are manufactured and toxic, and we probably need to loose ourselves from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And some of those toxic ones that you mentioned, you know, we, we've talked here on this uh, on this podcast before about narcissists and how attractive uh, pastorates are to narcissists and how many narcissists are actually pastors of, yeah, like 800 people four times a week hearing me preach. like. That's a narcissist dream. Um, And actually, Nona Jones, the director of for Facebook, the director of church partnerships, I just heard her last week uh, share. She said, I think the reason why so many churches are pushing to reopen, she's like, some of it's healthy. But she said, I think some of it is driven by the pastor who misses being able to hold the crowd and hold the attention in the Mm -hmm. palm of their hand. Right. And I went, oh, I just it just it just hit me when I was on a run like, oh, that's terrible. Um, But I think it's terrible because it's so true. But. You know, in this season, Sean, as a pastor and as a human, in all the intensity and uncertainty, what lies are you tempted to believe in this season? Yeah. So um, because I'm a teaching pastor and because the preaching has always meant so much to me as a this is my gift to the world. Um, I've been tempted to believe because we're multi-site. Right. Um, but when you go online you don't need a teaching team. You, it's just one person, one girl, one guy can do it every week for everybody. Um, the weeks that I don't do it, I'm tempted to believe that I don't really matter. Mm-hmm. That, um, oh, this thing is just, this thing is just fine without me. Um, and then that always tempts us to want to go out and do something big or splashy or productive. Um, I'm tempted to believe that no one cares. Um, and all of that is, you know, uh, rooted in, you know, what now said about, um, the temptation to be relevant, um, and reduce yourself to what, what you do matter. And, um, and those, those have been pretty significant, 
for, um, for I think a lot of pastors, I know, I know this has been significant for me. It's like, okay, if I'm not doing this thing that I have done now for over two decades, what's my purpose in the world? Mm. Um, yeah. I think so that, that's, that's, that's a significant, that's a significant struggle every day. And especially mm-hmm. when it's like, Oh, I don't have, how can I make myself important this week? Mm-hmm. Sean, I feel like you have the attention of everyone, all the pastors and even non-pastors listening, nodding their heads violently like us saying yes, yes. Like feeling those feels and being present in the same places where, where, where we are, we're all sharing this. So, um, what are some ways that you're finding hope and healing and even replenishment, even in the midst of feeling depleted and believing some of these lies or being tempted to believe some of these lies? So the real upside for us is that we do have teenage daughters, which means that our, when they were both home doing school, like we did not have some of the very real and natural frustrations that other parents had with, man, I couldn't imagine doing toddlers first, second, third grade. That's what we just like, I'm, I'm so grateful that our girls are the ages that they were, but we have also discovered, like we went into it thinking because our oldest is a junior, like our clock is ticking. Like we see it. Uh, and we hear it. She's got an app on her phone, which counts down the days to her graduation. Right. <laughs> um, and th- so for us, we thought we're getting time back just to be a family. So we, before Houston got turned into Houston in the summer and was too hot to be outside. Like every Saturday night, it was like, we would grill, we'd cook a big dinner. We would play games all night. Um, my wife and the girls like watch, like hate watch all these like cheesy Hallmark movies. This has been there. Um, like they've done this for years in the summer. Well, they got two summers like back to back, um, to, to do all of that. No, no, they said they. Are yeah. you sure it isn't we? Oh, yeah, it's they. It's they. I, I'm, in, I'm, in another, um, I'm in another room completely. My youngest, like, something particularly cheesy. When something particularly cheesy, she'll hit the pause button, and she'll say, I got to take a lap. And then she'll just walk around downstairs, <laughs> like, just, like, walking off the cheese. But, oh, like, my gosh. To have, like, these, in, um, like, long-form conversations um, with our girls and with like, there have been some new friendships that have formed for me, um, both in our church, on our church staff and and other people, because, Hey, like, let's sit down, like we can sit down for an hour on zoom and talk in ways that we haven't before. And so it's, I find the relational appeal of this time. And there are some things my wife and I've talked about very straightforwardly. Um, if the world were to go back to quote unquote normal tomorrow. What about this time, this season are the things that we don't want to have changed? Like we, I can't imagine going back to the way it was before. It, it just feels tiring thinking about it. And I didn't realize how tired we all were from it until we all stopped doing it. But in so many ways, this is a better lifestyle than we had before. Mm -hmm. Um, and that's that's what gives me hope is that for me for our church for churches for businesses for the culture that we will see um i know for us we have decided as a family we're not doing that again we're not going back to racing between school and work and volleyball and dominican preaching team and speech and debate and, you know, elite club volleyball and all, you know, where it's just like you get home and everybody's just beat down and we all have to go to bed because we have to wake up early in the morning and do it all again. Um, we're going to try our best to not do that. And that's a better rhythm of life. And I don't think that COVID is some sort of gift from God, um, you know, to rearrange and reorient American culture. But I am trying to see the gifts of it. And that is huge for us. Mm, mm, uh, mm. 
Yeah, and that's great. That, like we are on the church level. There's so many things that we haven't been able to do because like our buildings are these big buildings. They don't have classrooms and that sort of thing. And we're multiple services at both sites. So you're getting people off campus, getting people on campus. The things that have been most successful, quote unquote, successful for us have been um, a contemplative service on Tuesday nights called Be Still, a contemplative service on Wednesday nights. We do Vespers on Wednesday nights, one-on-one pastoral care. Um, we have we have Bible classes on Sunday morning via Zoom, which we've never been able to do. Huh. And and people love them. And oh, like we can we can legitimately add that to the battery of ways that we help people f- form into disciples now. Mm-hmm. And I'm I'm really glad that the people in our system who needed to see that those things are being able to see them in real time and go, oh, there is a need for us to do that to more fully form disciples and partner with God in the lives of people. Mm-hmm. That's great. That's great. Well, before we let you go, we also know that this fall you've got a book uh, coming out, which is great. I know we could talk for another hour or two just on the Enneagram itself. And most of our listeners are familiar with the Enneagram, but tell us a little bit about that project you have with Suzanne Stabile and you know, you're three. And so, you know, I imagine uh, I mean, it kind of relates back to what you're saying. Like, how can I be useful? I don't mm-hmm. feel like I can preach or produce or accomplish anything. Um, again, for those of us who are familiar with the Enneagram, three is sort of the accomplisher wanting to get things done. And and uh, so what was that journey like? Tell us about the book. Um, yeah. When would that be available? Yeah. So on October 6th, it's available. It's available for pre-sale now. It's called 40 Days of Being a Three. And it's part of an entire series that um, InterVarsity Press that IVP is doing where they are doing a 40-day reader for every number on the Enneagram. So they reached out to um, eight of us to write those. And each one's going to be a little bit different, obviously reflecting that number and the author. I mean, some are going to have art and illustration because of the author. Um, uh, as a three, I was always glad to say that mine will come out first as is appropriate. <laughs> Um, um, so, um, and basically, you know, it's not just for threes. I mean, every, I do think it'll be really helpful for threes. And I've told people it's kind of like sitting through therapy with me for 40 days. Like, what would that, what, what would that be like? Um, but getting at some of the deep heart issues for every number. And mm. so I talk a lot about failure, um, we talk a lot about image and success and I talk about hobbies and photography and like what, why that's important. And I think each one, each entry is, you know, somewhere around 800 words. They're not long. And, um, because threes wouldn't read them if they were too long. Um, um, but if you obviously for threes, but of course, if you are married to a three, have children who, um, identifies three on the Enneagram, work with three. Um, I think I tried to write in a way that would be really helpful for getting inside of their world. And I think all of the other authors in the series have done the same thing. Like, so mm-hmm. if, if your wife's a four, for instance, um, if you read this, you will better understand how a four interprets the world without getting into the weeds, without getting into um, triads and stances and wings and subtypes, you know, and harmony, try and doing all of that sort of thing. Uh, Just like this is basically how they interpret the world. And it's very storified because I wrote it and I can't talk without telling a story. Um, So I think um, I'm really happy with the way it turned out. IVP's done a great job working with me on it. Um, I do this one little interaction with my wonderful, wonderful editor, Cindy. And she's like, there are a lot of entries in here about failure. And I was like, yeah, I know. (laughs) (laughs) That's, that's big in the life of a one and a three. Yeah. Yeah. So that's that, like, that's, that's almost the whole ball game. Like if you can learn to deal with failure and image, then you're going to be in a much healthier place much more often. 
Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's great. Well, Sean, we're so grateful for you, the work that you do at Ecclesia, at Missio Alliance, writing, um, the way you're helping preachers across the country. So we're really grateful. I mean, one of the things that Doug and I love in these interviews that when we get to an end of an interview and we say, oh, we could ask like 15 more questions, but we're out of time. That shows us it's a great interview and you definitely are in, in that category. So thanks for sharing your time with us and uh, grateful for you and your ministry. Oh, thank you. Thank you, JR. Thank you, Doug, for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Doug, I love that conversation that we were able to have with Sean Palmer. Me too. I, I think too, also just, this is something that no one really would ever know except for the two of us, but this is our second time to try to get, uh, or to, to get an interview with Sean because the first time he had a pastoral emergency and it like even yeah, the reminder yeah. of how, man, there are, you know, as pastors, we might have these things and stuff just comes up in ministry. So I was just really grateful to have, uh, the, yeah, the conversation was just rich and I feel like the guy bubbles off of the screen, like just yeah. engaging the whole time. Um, yeah. yeah. What are some things yeah. that stuck out to you? Yeah, well, I mean, first of all, I think it's a great point that you mentioned that, you know, we sort of joke like, oh, pastors only work one day a week. And, you know, but yeah, like having trouble scheduling him because we had it scheduled and then something blew up and he had to cancel on us, not because he's flaking on us, but because rightfully so an emergency popped up uh, greater than than was needed. So, uh, yeah, anyway, I, I just really, uh, I appreciate you bringing that up. Yeah. I mean, we did not, when we logged on, uh, we did not think we'd be talking about the San Antonio Spurs <laughs> and coach Greg Popovich. And if you're not an NBA fan, it's okay, but I think there's still lessons there. And then the other thing, you know, talking about wine, like I did not anticipate we'd be talking about wine, but I think what he talked about the importance of hobbies was so important because sometimes when I ask pastors who look weary and overwhelmed, um, burning the w- the wick at both ends, I just say, so tell me your hobbies. And unfortunately, sadly, the answer I get more than any other is I don't have any, or I don't know, or I spend time with my family. That's true. And I think that's wonderful that that's life-giving, but that's not really a hobby. Those are relationships. Those are your people. That's family. That's good. That's life-giving, but we still need hobbies. <laughs> yes. Amen. And I'm really glad that we leaned into that and you, you asked about that. So, um, yeah, yeah even if you're talking about photography, talking about some of the other things that he's doing, that if he's interested in something, he, he just goes after it, uh, writing, reading biographies of, uh, of presidents that he's interested in, you know, um, yeah. great idea. Yeah, I really felt like just the the script that he was writing for pastors or just the permission is like, man, if there's something interesting, you, you know, interest is there's an interest that you want to pursue, pursue it, figure it out and you make time. And I love he said something like, if you know what's on Netflix, you know, you have time. I, like, yeah. I was like, oh, that's so good. <laughs> yeah, that was good. He also talked about um, the Hemingway quote that he said, you know, we spend the first 27 years of our life living and then we spend the rest of our lives writing about those first 27 years. And I, I agree. I mean, I think that, you know, it reminded me of something that Erwin McManus said. He said, you want to preach interesting sermons, live interest, live an interesting life. And I think that's mm-hmm. really important that we live the kind of life that other people would find attractive in following Jesus. Yeah. You know, and if we're not experiencing adventure, are we really leaning into faith? Not that it has to be bear grills and, you know, jumping off of cliffs and, you know, doing, you know, bungee jumping and doing all these crazy things. No, it doesn't have to be that, but are there stories, you know, you and I have talked about this, you know, at, at renew, when we have people share their stories, we say, don't give us ancient history. Don't tell us about the time you became a Christian when you were seven and how for the last 35 years, you've just been coming to church every Sunday. Like, tell us where is God at work in the last month, in the last week? Where have you seen God actively at work that makes you say, yay, God? And I think that's really important that we as pastors are leaning in where we have to depend upon the Holy Spirit. And he talked about that as well. You know, how much that that conference that he went to in Mm -hmm. Dallas, where he said, nothing here is requiring a dependence upon the Spirit, um, which was which is fascinating. It reminds me of the story. I think it was a South Korean pastor, one of the largest uh, pastor, one of the largest churches um, 
pastors one of the largest churches in South Korea. And he came to the United States. And after a week or two of visiting and meeting with churches and church teams and ministries, they asked him, so what do you notice about churches in America? And he said, it's amazing how much you all can get done without the Holy Spirit. Mm. And that's always stuck with me. Mm. That has always stuck with me. So yeah, what are some things that stuck out to you, Doug? Oh my goodness. When he talked about the three things um, that pastors don't trust, God, what we teach or preach and their church. Um, I, I just, I, I think back to quite a few years ago uh, when I first started counseling as a late twenties guy, uh, like those are the, th- those are basically the three things that I was confronting. And so that, um, yeah, that really, for me just hit home and even just realizing how, uh, I was thinking about how important it is for pastors to like learn, first of all, to identify that when that's, when that's there and then to learn what it is to begin to develop a trust in those places. Um, yeah. so yeah, for me, I, that, that felt really sobering. I, I appreciate too, just his, uh, willingness to talk about the tears over the last five months. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, I was dying when he was talking about, uh, his wife and two daughters watching the cheesy Hallmark films <laughs> and he was, you know, adamant that, his yeah, he was adamant that he was not watching <laughs> that with them. But I just had this like picture of him kind of like moving into the kitchen, like just peeking over to see what's going on. Cause you get sucked into him. It's awful. Like my we wife like to daughter- interview his wife and girls to see <laughs> yes. if, uh, how they might answer that. Yes. Oh, dad loves that stuff. <laughs> he picks him out every day. He's sitting over there crying with his box of Kleenex. Sean, um, we don't mean to be throwing yeah. you under the bus here, Not at bro. all. Not at all. <laughs> so, yeah, but I mean, he, you know, talking about tears and then talking about ego. Yeah. It was fascinating, mm-hmm. Doug, when he talked about, he said, we are not needed as much as we think we are. Yes. Oh, we are, sorry, we are not need. we are... Yeah, we are not needed as much needed as, we, as, much we, as we think and, we are. And then he also talked about preaching. He said, um, you don't need to preach if you need to preach. <laughs> yes. What a great line. That was a great line. You've got to be up front. You shouldn't be up front. Yeah, there's so much there. He just checking our ego, you know, the lies we're tempted to believe, how much of those are being fed by sort of like, yeah, what we accomplish or who we are or what we think we need to be. And so, yeah, absolutely yeah. fascinating. Yeah. Th- good interview. I think too, the very last thing, and we'll jump into resources is, uh, when, when, uh, when we were having the conversation about his book and he made the statement, Oh, of course, you know, mine had to be first. Cause I'm a three JR was drinking water in that moment. And then he just disappeared from the screen. And I thought he choked on the water. He was, I didn't know what happened, but I think it was, I think that also just, we laughed a lot in this, in this interview. And I'm so grateful to have an opportunity to just be with, be with Sean and to be able to laugh and to see you almost choke on your water. That was awesome. I I took a drink at the wrong time. (laughs) I was not expecting to joke in that moment. I was just taking a quick sip of water in my water bottle and uh, just about inhaled uh, H2O there. So that was, uh, yeah, I was choking a little bit, but I, I made a quick recovery. So yeah, give yeah. us some resources. Yeah, let me give you guys some resources. Yeah. I got that. And then Jared's got some great questions. But um, first of all, pick up his book um, The uh, that, that's coming out. Um, yeah, 40, yeah, days, sorry, 40 days of being a three. Uh, we think it's just going to be a great opportunity to, yeah, just to have a chance to learn more about what it's like boots on the ground as a three for if you're a three and you're trying to figure that out, or if you are married to a three and trying to figure them out. Um, and then the second book is we, we've talked about this book a few times over the, over the last few seasons, but the book in the name of Jesus, if you have not bought the book or read the book, uh, please, please, please consider picking it up and checking it out. Um, for a book that was written over 20 years ago, it is more relevant today than ever before. And so we really feel like that is a, another great resource. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a couple of questions we want to leave with you all. When Sean talked about pastors don't trust God, they don't trust what we teach or tell our church, and many pastors don't trust their own church. I want to challenge you all very directly. And I'm just going to pause with each one. And don't answer too quickly. Pastors, do you trust God? Is your level of trust deepening in the crisis, the multi-layered crisis of 2020? Pastors, do you trust 
what you're teaching and preaching and telling your church? And pastors, do you trust your church? And if the answers of that, those were maybe or sort of or no or I'm not sure, I wonder what it would look like in this season to just deepen that trust just a little bit more. Let me tighten the screws a little bit more here. When he talked about you don't need to preach if you need to preach, are you able to sit with your ego and see if there's anything there that needs to be addressed? That's really hard. And then lastly, when he talked about the Hemingway quote and living interesting lives, uh, what, what, is it, what does it look like for you to live a life of adventure with Jesus? That your life is attractive to the outside world. And uh, maybe that includes hobbies. We've talked about hobbies before. I think it was season one. We hit on that real hard. But what are some hobbies that you could develop or a hobby you can develop here in the fall of 2020, just as we're sort of still in the midst of the, the ongoing crisis? What would that look like for you to be pursuing something of interest? If you've got time to know what's on Netflix, you've got time for a hobby. So, Doug, why don't you send us out? Yeah. So, uh, brothers and sisters, as you go, may you walk with joy in the midst of all that is going on. May you see the season that is a, that is that we are currently in and that is ahead of us as opportunities to see the spirit at work. May we recognize and put to death the places where we've learned to trust ourselves over God. And may we become a people who are reliant solely on the spirit of Christ that dwells within us. Amen. Amen.